Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Uh, to the latest on Eastern Europe now, though. Um, UN Refugee Agency now estimating that uh, about 3.87 million people have fled the war in Ukraine. That's as of Sunday. Um, only 45,000 crossed into other countries in the last 24 hours, which is the slowest one-day count yet. So does that mean it's letting up? Uh, tough to say at this point. But uh, about 6.5 million people, they estimate, remain displaced within the country. Uh, 12 million may be trapped. And about 4 million so far have actually fled the country. So that's the latest on the situation there. In terms of where we may be headed, um, the president of Ukraine saying today that uh, that country could declare neutrality and potentially accept a compromise on contested areas in the country's east and offer security guarantees to Russia in order to secure peace without delay. But uh, he's still refusing to have meetings with Putin at this point or saying that he wants that, actually. He's saying that's the only way we can end this, but there are talks that are set to get underway in Turkey. Interesting that we're at this point, though, a month in, when a lot of people, I think, thought that um, it would not be anything like what we've seen play out over the last uh, 30 days. Now, we're going to chat with Oral Brown now, who is a professor of political science and international relations at the University of Toronto. Um, Oral, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time once again. Thank you. Yeah, when we take a look at the situation where we're at, I mean, how, how do you how do you characterize it? I mean, was the West just mistaken about Russian military capabilities with with all the estimates that this would happen very very quickly and they wouldn't reach uh, you know wouldn't run into too much trouble? Um, were we just wrong in our estimation? We were, and we certainly were uh, wrong in our estimation of Ukrainian will and capacity and of the president of Ukraine to become a Churchillian figure, not uh, this actor, comedian, uh, who somehow, well, it seemed almost accidentally, became president of, of Ukraine. He turned out to be the person who rallied the country, who was willing to say to the American administration when they had suggested that he ought to evacuate, that he needs ammunition, that he's not looking for a ride. That was a seminal moment. So there have been a combination of factors, but for quite some time now, we have overestimated Russian capabilities. And the problem here was that it was not uh, a matter of respecting Russia. Every country respect, uh, deserves respect. But when you overestimate Russian capabilities, you allow the kind of bullying that Russia has engaged in for many years. And there was this tendency for deference. That is, we were so sensitive to Russian concerns that we were not willing to stand up against Russian aggressive acts. Please remember that this is not the first invasion of Ukraine. Russia invaded Ukraine in uh, sorry, in 2014. They illegally had annexed Crimea, and they supported the separatist movement. And the world reaction was very muted, and the sanctions that were instituted were very ineffective. Um, so when we take a look at 
how Russia was, you know, why we overestimated them. And we, they do have a massive military. I mean, that much is true, right? I mean, when we talk about the number of tanks they have, the number of, you know, all the equipment they have, they are a massive, massive fighting force, correct? It is a massive force. They spent a huge amount of money. Vladimir Putin invested something like $700 billion over a 10-year span in the military. So there was reason to expect that this would be a very capable military. We saw them act in Syria, where they propped up the Assad regime, basically saved the Assad regime, which, as we know, is one of the most murderous regimes on the planet. It killed somewhere half a million of its own people, and Russia participated in the leveling of the largest city in uh, Syria, Aleppo. So all of these tended to impress the West, but we forgot a number of things that is essential to understand about military capability. One is morale. You could have the best equipment, but if the troops don't want to fight, if they're poorly led, then uh, you will not draw all the advantage that you can from that military capability. The other uh, element that we disregarded was that Russia is one of the most corrupt countries on the planet. If you look at Transparency International, which rates corruption in various countries, they rank among the worst uh, in the world. So when you have a system that is so corrosively corrupt in the business, the legal world, the political world in Russia, then it ought not to have been surprising that that corruption reached into the military, which meant that they would buy the tanks, but they wouldn't maintain them. It means that they had equipment, but parts of it disappeared. Okay. That you would not get the proper training. I see. That makes sense. So, I mean, yeah, we talk about uh, a lot of the things that we know are in place, but like you say, if you're not, if they're not maintained and maintained by troops with, with good morale. I mean, we hear that some of the Russian soldiers uh, got to Ukraine thinking they were heading out on a, a training exercise. I mean, they really didn't even know what was being asked of them, right? Vladimir Putin is a personalist leader, so he has become a dictator who tolerates no dissent, not even among his uh, supporters. He wants to hear only one perspective, that is, people who are reinforcing his views. He is given to secrecy, so he did not want to inform even his own military fully as to the exact mission. Conscripts were used, despite the denial these would be all professional soldiers. So, yes, they were poorly prepared, not just in terms of training, not just in terms of maintenance of equipment, but even in terms of being properly briefed as to the nature of the mission, except for the top echelons of the military. What does it tell us about where this may go next? I mean, is there any way? Like I say, there are peace talks in Turkey uh, planned for today. Uh, It seems like um, Ukraine willing to sit down and make some concessions. Where does it go from here in terms of now what we see with the Russian fighting forces? When we look at what uh, the president of Ukraine is offering, and that is that he is willing to give up on the dream that now most Ukrainians have, of joining NATO, that he is willing to have neutrality, one would think that this ought to satisfy the proclaimed goals of the Putin regime, that is to prevent Ukraine from joining NATO. But the reality is that was not the real reason. That was 
confusing an excuse for aggression with what is the real cause for aggression. And the real cause for aggression was not NATO. Let's not forget that in 2014, Russia invaded Ukraine, and it was about the Mm -hmm. EU, the European Union. It had nothing to do with NATO. What Russia fears the most is democracy, the spread of democracy, an idea that would remove the likes of Vladimir Putin from power. And they do not want to see a successful democratic Ukraine. And this is why there hasn't been much movement. And what we see is that the Putin regime is trying to inflict the maximum amount of damage and suffering on Ukraine. It's almost a kind of Stalinist type of brutality where you inflict mass casualties, and you may even suffer mass casualties, to get to the ultimate goal. And uh, Vladimir Putin hopes that if he can subdue Ukraine, either by conquering a large part or taking all of Ukraine or by rendering what is left of Ukraine as a hopeless, helpless entity, a kind of frozen conflict that can unfreeze at any one moment, this would look like a a victory. And then he can try to intimidate the West by using nuclear blackmail to lift the sanctions. Um, I want to ask you just before I let you go in terms of how this reflects on Canada. We know there's been a lot of discussion, some consternation about the Arctic and, you know, what is Russia making moves on Canadian Arctic? Who's going to end up in control of the Arctic? With what we're seeing in Ukraine right now, does that change the way Canadians should perceive any threats or actions or, or change how they plan for this? If we believe that somehow we in Canada have international immunity, that these are conflicts that only touch on distant lands, then we should be disabused of that because we live in a globalized system and we are affected by what happens in Ukraine very deeply. We have troops that are supporting uh, the independence of Latvia. So if there was a move by Russia against the Baltic states, we would be in a hot war ourselves because we have those forces there. But you write about the Arctic. We are neighbors across this vast Arctic Ocean. But when it comes to the ecology, when it comes to navigation, it is not that distant. And Russia has militarized the Arctic very heavily. They are conducting all-out exploration for hydrocarbons. And in that fragile environment, any accident can lead to catastrophic impact that will have an effect on Canada. So we need to protect our sovereignty. Um, Oral, thank you so much for your time today. I always appreciate chatting. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. You bet. That is Oral Brown. Um, Oral is a professor of political science and international relations at the University of Toronto and uh, joins us to give us a little insight on the situation. That's the latest on what's going on.